Good morning. This is John Bacon with 30 Minute Theology. Unfortunately, I'm not joined by uh, Mark today, uh, which is unfortunate, but uh, although this will be a bit more of a monologue than a dialogue, I believe that it's still an opportunity to journey into the beginning of Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Mark and I together, these last two episodes, provided a bit of introduction to uh, Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Our first episode dealt primarily with who is Pope John Paul II himself, who is the man, Carol Wojtyla, that became this pope who uh, pioneered such a profound theology of the human person in his and her uh, masculine and feminine embodiment. After that, we did a little bit of a, a dive into what's the sort of cultural philosophical background that makes a theology of the body necessary. Pope John Paul II himself refers to theology of the body as an adequate anthropology, an adequate understanding of the human person, which seems to imply that we as modern people had found ourselves with an inadequate understanding of the human person. Mark and I did our best to sketch a little map of how, if that's correct, we have arrived at an inadequate understanding of the human person. Those forces that have led us to an inadequate understanding of the human person are both philosophical and cultural. Uh, we, we focus more on the philosophical developments of modernity, focusing with Rene Descartes and Francis Bacon, the two pioneers of modernity, and how Rene Descartes deliberately or by accident, it's hard for me to know, did um, rupture the inherent connection between the body and soul. Likewise, Francis Bacon ruptured the connection between knowledge and love. Rene Descartes, through his desire for certainty, through his grasping for certainty, tended to separate the, the human person from the human body by focusing on logical syllogisms more than by lived experience. Francis Bacon, in his grasp for power, separated the quest for knowledge from the search for love and service. And then from a Catholic perspective, it's easy, even by the fact that I use the word grasp to describe both of their philosophical moves, to anchor their particular uh, projects in what happened in the Garden of Eden many thousands, if not million years ago, when our first parents chose to grasp for a certain type of knowledge, for a certain type of power, rather than to receive the gift of life and the gift of love that was offered to them continuously from God himself. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Today, we move beyond the introduction, and we actually get to start the very beginning of Pope John Paul II's actual theology of the body. And with Pope John Paul II, we will start off where he starts. The first section of Theology of the Body, so um, Theology of the Body is divided into two major sections. Each one of those two major sections divided into three subject subsections. The first section is called the Words of Christ. In the Words of Christ, he deals with three dialogues between Christ and his uh, audience, and they all come from the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know if that's uh, by design, Pope John Paul II, or it's just coincidental that the dialogues he chose are from the Gospel of Matthew. 
But the three sections are titled Christ Appeals to the Beginning, Christ Appeals to the Heart, and Christ Appeals to the Resurrection. So the first section is backwards looking to our origin as human beings. The middle section is present looking to our desires, understanding the desires of the heart and what they tell us about who we are. And the third section of the words of Christ is Christ Appeals to the Resurrection. It's looking for, for our purpose for the glory for which we are called and how that informs who we are. Christopher West, a popularizer of Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body, who I'm indebted to and a big fan of, he's, he likes to describe John Paul II's three section: Christ appeals to the beginning, Christ appeals to the heart, and Christ appeals to the resurrection as uh, this threefold scheme. Our design, our desires, and our destiny. And what I like about Christopher West's scheme there, our design, our desire, and our destiny, is that he's, he's teasing out for us that what Pope John Paul II is doing is he is telling the story of humanity. We as, as actors, as free agents with will, with intellect, capable of, of great heroism, capable of great evil, of great love, of great betrayal and treachery, we exist within a dramatic tension and we cannot understand who we are. We cannot understand our nature, our role, our identity without placing ourselves within the actual narrative that we inhabit. Okay, So Pope John Paul II, through the words of Christ, is locating us in that narrative Okay, according to Christ's own definition of the narrative. So this first section with the three subsections, Christ's, uh, the words of Christ, it seeks to answer the question, who are we as human beings? The second section, uh, which has a much longer title, it deals with the question, okay, now that we've established what we are as human beings and who we are, how do we as human beings live lives of authentic fulfillment? Okay. Very important point. We cannot answer question two, how do I live an authentic human life until I answer the prior question, what am I? Okay, what is a human being? I cannot find the deepest uh, answers to life's questions unless I, I first begin with the primary question, well, what am I? Okay. Um, Pope John Paul II here is epitomizing the Christian and evangelical impulse of the Catholic Church that was articulated so clearly and boldly in the Second Vatican Council, particularly in its pastoral document titled Gaudium et Spes, which is Latin for joy and hope. Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 22, says that only Christ fully reveals man to himself. Only Christ fully reveals man to himself. It's very profound. Pope John Paul II was actually largely responsible for this being in the Gaudium et Spes document in the first place as then Archbishop uh, Carol Wojtyla. We as Christians think about Christ as scripture puts it being the icon of the invisible God, which he is. Jesus is fully God. But Jesus also, as St. Paul says in Corinthians, is the last Adam. And what that means is Christ being God, assuming our humanity, reveals to us what 
our humanity was intended to become from the very beginning. Okay, Christ reveals man to himself. Christ reveals man to himself because Christ is the perfect man, but also because Christ, in his solidarity with us, in his love for us from the Father, he has a compassion for us, uh, an understanding of us that informs all of his teaching. Christ does, is not an ivory tower theologian um, speaking to man based on logical syllogisms about what man is that he got out of a book. No, Jesus is, is both man's creator, but he's also man's redeemer by becoming man. Okay, So God him at Spes, 22, only Christ fully reveals man to himself. Another, it's, It gets stated later by saying, it is only in the mystery of the word made flesh that man discovers who he is. Okay, so Pope John Paul II is being very Christian here, okay, that if we want to understand who we as human beings are, then we begin with Christ. But remember that this crisis about who we are as humans, it, it is centered on human sexuality, okay? We uh, humans are, are more than sexual beings, but we're certainly not less, okay? And in the this indissoluble unity of the body and soul what is inscribed in our body sexually it communicates something about us psychologically and spiritually as well okay pope john paul ii pope benedict XVI, pope francis as well they're all adamant that human sexuality says something not simply horizontally about man and woman and their relationship to each other it also says something about us and God. Indeed, um, Thomas Aquinas says that we must know God by analogy, okay, because God is not a creature. He's not an object. He's not, I can look at my desk, I can look at my water bottle, I can understand the water bottle. Well, persons are mysteries. God is even beyond the mystery of human personhood. He's a creator. He can't be categorized. That means that our knowledge of God has to be analogical knowledge, okay? God is both like and unlike persons we know, things we know, objects that we encounter in creation, okay? So this means our knowledge of God is analogical. The primary analogy that God uses throughout Scripture for us to know him is the analogy of marriage, okay? The Apostle Paul makes this point in Ephesians chapter 5 where he quotes Genesis chapter 2 about marriage where it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting this, Paul immediately says, this is a profound mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, God's preferred analogy, his primary analogy for how he wants to be known by us, related to by us, is the marital analogy, okay? So theology of the body does have a very um, spousal focus, a sexual focus. As we progress through theology of the body, this will not leave um, celibate people unmarried out of the equation in any way. No, in fact, it'll actually uh, deal with them in a very profound way, which sounds weird right now, so we'll have to arrive at it before we can give an adequate explanation of why. 
But Christopher West, once again, in explaining theology of the body, he says that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of sacred scripture, can be summarized in five words. God wants to marry us. God wants to marry us. This is wonderful, shocking, mystical news. God wants to marry us. What does that mean? Well, whatever it means, we begin to reflect on the depth of this mystery through the language of marriage that God actually gave to us, which is beautiful. But here's the difficulty. We as humans don't have the best track record with marriage. And it's not simply a problem today in America where divorce is rampant. It's been a problem throughout history. In fact, in Jesus' own time, in Matthew chapter 19, Pharisees came to Jesus. Apparently, they had problems with marriage in religious Israel, too. And here's what they asked him. This is 19. Uh, I'll begin in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife? And the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity, and marries another, commits adultery, and he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Deep passages, there's a lot we can go. Here I want to make one point, though. So the Pharisees, like us, they come to Jesus with problems. We've got marriage problems, okay? And uh, I won't even begin to unpack the list of questions that we moderns have about marriage, fertility, procreation, gender identity, divorce, remarriage. The list goes on and on and on, both ethical and practical questions about what to do. What's very interesting is Jesus does not dive straight at, okay, these are the problems, let's find solutions. He actually challenges the very way that the Pharisees frame the discussion. Pope John Paul notices that Jesus quite emphatically uses the word the phrase in the beginning okay pope john paul ii recognized something that jesus is doing here very deliberately okay it's very consistent of jesus jesus is saying that when we're looking at the problems we can't start with present day problems we have to start with the past design here's an example that christopher west uses he says imagine that our cars are getting poor gas mileage um they're um the tread on our tires is wearing thin uh the ride is uncomfortable the suspension is being worn out so we pour tons of money into designing better suspensions higher quality tread 
Okay, we do all these things to make our cars run better. Well, the problem is that we're driving our cars around with flat tires. Okay, why are we driving around our cars with flat tires? Because we have forgotten that in the beginning, tires had air in them. He uses an analogy for marriage. We have lost the air in marriage. Okay, now we'll, we'll talk about what that grace is that we've lost. But if we don't know that we've lost an actual grace, okay, if we don't know that there has been a radical transformation of how Adam and Eve experienced union and how we experience union, okay, then we will come up with radical solutions, okay? The problem is, is the solution is very simple. We need air back in the tires. Now, uh, in order to continue a very uh, overly simplistic analogy, Christ comes to reinflate our tires, okay? There's hope. The theology of the body is, it's gospel. It's gospel of the body, okay? So this is not doom and gloom. But the point is, is that we can't start by just listing all that's wrong with the car. We have to get out the owner's manual. Oh, I've never aired out my tires. In the same way, Jesus is saying that if we want to understand um, our present-day ethical concerns, our present-day relationship problems, our difficulties with marriage, we have to go back to the beginning. Okay? So what Pope John Paul does is starting with this word from Christ, in the beginning it was not snow. Well, what was in the beginning? Okay? And this takes us to the book of Genesis. I would like to point out that when... Um, so I got this from Christopher West as well, too. Uh, Genesis has to do with origins, okay? When he teaches a Theology of the Body course, he challenges his students for their prayer throughout this, this rich retreat experience to be, Lord, show me the meaning of the word. Lord, show me the meaning of the word. Because, of course, our faith as Christians is the word was made flesh, okay? The word is so important for us. The word is how we um, come to know, experience, truth relate relate truths to one another okay lord show me the meaning of the word if we misuse words we we uh crumple up the map between between true things okay there's a connection between the word genesis uh, gender generate progeny genitals okay so spoiler alert um our sexual desires the design of our sexual sexuality is related to our origin as human beings. Okay, and then we're gonna we're gonna spend a lot of time with that in this first section of Pope John Paul II. But Genesis is um, it is the origin story of the cosmos, of humanity, of the various um, areas of creation, of the people of God through God's call of Abraham. Okay, so Genesis is a collection of origin stories. Genesis is not a scientific manual. Okay, we and and if you read Genesis that way, then you're like, well, how can you square that with science? Well, it's easy to square it with science if you understand that Genesis is not science. Okay, it's poetic literature. Interestingly enough, Genesis actually provides two distinct accounts of creation. This is one more reminder that this is not to be taken as a sort of literal scientific textbook. Um, but it has two complementary poetic 
depictions of creation. What is divided in our modern Bibles is Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 uh, has the famous refrain of the Lord speaking. God said, let there be light, and there is light. Okay, And it's almost like this liturgical sequence of God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. It's almost like you see like the various um, uh, components, facets of creation, almost like creating this processional line in praise of God, okay? Um, if you've been part of a liturgical service, you know that the celebrant of the liturgy is always the, the last one in line, okay? You've got the altar servers, the candles, the bearers of gifts first, and then in the line is the priest, okay? Well, what comes last in Genesis chapter 1? You and me, man and woman. And um, it describes the creation of man and woman by saying, in the image of God, he created them, in his uh, his likeness, he made them male and female. He created them. Okay, super super succinct, but profound um, statement here that we are created in God's image and likeness. Okay, and notice that it goes um, back and forth between uh, singular pronouns um, and plural pronouns. Okay, so we have all these these little allusions to the depth of meaning within our humanity that we are created in the image of a God who is three in one, who is a communion of persons. Uh, we image God not just in our humanity, but in the fact that our humanity is male and female, okay? And that our masculinity and our femininity by the very design of our bodies is a call to communion with the other, and that communion is fruitful. There's all this profound um, spiritual symbolism through not despite but through the body our bodies proclaim these divine mysteries about who god is from all eternity as a communion of love father son holy spirit uh our bodies also prophetically and we'll talk about the prophetism of the body later prophetically bear testimony from the beginning to the fact that god will take a body a man okay we call this is why one reason why uh, Holy Week, Jesus' Passion Week, and Jerusalem is called the Week of the Bridegroom, okay? There's so much symbolism here. But this is a sort of, Genesis 1 is like looking at creation, looking at man from the outside in, okay? And most theology for the first 1900 years of the church was from the outside looking in. John Paul too knows that we moderns we are we think about things more subjectively. Okay, um, we we tend to think about things through our experience of them. Okay, and he notices that Genesis one and two has this beautiful dialectic of objective external and subjective internal. If you read Genesis two, you're kind of looking at creation through Adam's eyes. Okay, so if Genesis one it wants us to kind of look at Adam and Eve to to see some things about who we are in our relationship to God. Um, Genesis 2 wants us to put on Adam's glasses. Okay, in Genesis 3, at the end of Genesis 2, we'll have on both Adam and Eve's glasses. Um, but Genesis 2 is, is inviting us to actually go back to the beginning imaginatively, Okay. This is why John Paul II, like C.S. Lewis and others, describes Genesis 1 and 2 as myth, which is a very misleading term for a lot of us based on what we think the word myth means. Myth does not 
actually mean false or fantastic or imaginary. Uh, technically, what myth refers to is a type of historical or prehistorical events that are related to us in symbolic narrative. Okay, So in a myth, the characters are real, the events are real, but the author has chosen a very poetic, not only very poetic, but a profoundly brief poetic way of communicating this story so that we can re-enter it. And that's because myth is two things at once. Number one, it's an actual historical occurrence that, that happened in the beginning. But second, it's, it's a lived experience that continues echoing through humans ever since. Okay, so, and and John Paul II notices this by the way that Jesus uses Genesis. By the way that Jesus uses Genesis, um, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of being hard of heart. Okay, he's being hard on them, but even though he's interacting with people that are hard of heart, by bringing up the beginning, 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 he's challenging them to remember. The beginning okay if jesus is challenging the pharisees to remember the beginning that means that jesus believes that we have some sort of memory stored within us of our prehistory okay uh even uh carl jung one of the most important depth psychologists of the 20th century he holds this view as well what he would refer to as the collective uh, subconscious, okay? We as humans, we have this prehistory embedded within our memory. This is what allows us to use symbols consistently across cultures throughout time, okay? We, we have this, this common imaginative grammar just embedded within us. We're born with it. Um, not all of it is culturally acquired. Some of it is, just seems to be innate to each person. So John Paul II talks about the three original experiences of Adam and Eve that we're going to walk through. And he says that the original experiences of Adam and Eve, their solitude with God, their unity, and their nakedness, and, and the meaning of that nakedness, are three original experiences which we cannot simply return to, but we can, quoting John Paul II now, approach uh, the threshold okay we can approach the boundary and we can see beyond the threshold okay so the original experiences of adam and eve uh once again quoting john paul ii now have a sort of photo negative in us what was for them experiences uh tranquil experiences that they possessed for us is now a sort of absence that we feel okay what adam and eve lived we long for but the negative shape of our longings correlates to the positive shape of adam and eve's lived experiences one more thing about myth aristotle believed that all philosophy all true philosophy begins with a place of wonder you cannot be a know-it-all and a philosopher. 
because a philosopher, the word itself, a lover of wisdom, is a lover, okay? And to fall in love is to fall in wonder. If we are to become wise about who we are as human beings, we must recover a sense of wonder of who we are. And this requires openness, and it requires courage, too. It's not an easy thing to do, okay? But if someone wants to guide into uh, theology of the body, that's, that's not simply an intellectual exercise. This is an emotional exercise. It's something that demands our imagination, our will, our experiences. Because if we are willing to go back to the beginning, to journey with Adam and Eve and stand on the boundary of Eve and look at what we have lost and accept these uh, glasses from Scripture and put them on that allow us to kind of look at paradise through our first parents' eyes, that brings with it many feelings, okay? Because our own stories, our own origin stories, our own fall stories, our own fall from grace, um, our wounds from Adam and Eve, original sin, it's, it's all connected. None of it's disconnected. So... As we journey with Adam and Eve, as we look at original solitude, as we look at original unity, original nakedness, it brings with it a heightened awareness of our deepest yearnings and the deepest pain that we have all experienced in life by living in a world that is not paradise. Okay? Now, Christ offers us something better than Eden. He offers us heaven, okay? But if we're going to go to heaven, we have we have to go through this process of our hearts being stretched to grieve what has been lost, which means we have to see what has been lost, to be honest with the desires of our heart, some of them noble, some of them scary to us. And we have to find a touchstone, a common point of resonance, between our design, our desires, and the destiny that Jesus offers for us.